one person hearing the other person tell her story on television had empowered the next person to come forward. And you got a sense of that in the room, too, that they were finding strength in numbers and power in numbers. Hello, and welcome to On Assignment. I'm Abby Wright. And I'm Lisa Cohen. Welcome to the first episode of season four. It's hard to believe. Over the summer, we had a special interim series where Abby and I interviewed some of last year's DuPont winners. And we begin our fall series with the last of those interviews with NBC anchor and correspondent Kate Snow, who just won a DuPont in January for her Dateline NBC report, The Cosby Accusers Speak. We first met Kate back in 2014 when she won a DuPont for her contributions to the NBC special report, Devastation in Oklahoma. She also hosted the awards that same year, and we saw her indomitable spirit firsthand when she managed to fly into New York in the middle of a massive snowstorm to get to the ceremony. And save our bacon by hosting, which was awesome. Kate's impressive career has taken her from CNN and ABC to NBC, where she has been since 2010 in a variety of roles. We caught up with Kate at NBC News this summer to talk about her work there, and specifically about her reporting on the women who have accused Bill Cosby of sexual harassment and assault. Let's take a listen to our edited conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You're really sort of having us, because we're here (laughs) today at NBC. In 30 Rock. Yes. Yes. On a little field trip. Good. Kate, how should we refer to you these days? Do you have a new title? So my title technically is anchor of NBC Nightly News Sunday and senior national correspondent for NBC News, which I think just makes me sound old, but that's my title. And what does that mean that you do these days? So I anchor every Sunday our flagship broadcast, Nightly News, the same broadcast that Lester Holt does Monday through Friday and, and Jose diaz Belart does on Saturday. I do on Sundays regularly. And then Monday through <laughs> Thursday on a good week, uh, sometimes Friday, <laughs> I am reporting. I'm a correspondent. I'm doing stories that, uh, frankly, I love to do, investigative, deeper dive um, thoughtful, hopefully provocative stories. Um, Right now, I've been focused the last couple of months on Sunday Night with Megyn Kelly, which is our new magazine format. We call it a magazine format show, which just means the pieces are longer. So they're 12 minutes versus last night I had a piece on Nightly News that was one minute, no, two minutes, two minutes max. So that's great to get to do longer form pieces. I love it. I love it. So, for example, this past Sunday, I did a story that we shot uh, mostly in Amsterdam in the Netherlands, but also in Atlanta, Georgia and New Jersey about a ballerina who has this incredible backstory. Her name is Michaela de Prince. She's very well known in the ballet world. Now she's, I think, 22 and she's dancing for the Dutch National Ballet. But what is unbelievable about her story is where she came from. She was a war orphan in Sierra Leone, who was known as Mabinti at the time. Twelve families had rejected her, I think. Then an American family goes to adopt her best friend at the orphanage, who ironically was also named Mabinti. And they found out that there were actually two Mabintis and that no one would take her. And this woman, Elaine de Prince, says, hold on, I'm taking both of them. 
takes them as sisters, moves them to Cherry Hill, New Jersey, puts her in ballet school because way back then she had said, that's what I want to be. And guess what? That's what she is now. It's an amazing story. So that's an example of a project that took us, uh, well, it took my producers at least six months, eight months. It took me two months of shooting um, once I got into the project. Wow, how great to immerse yourself in that kind yeah. of story, though. That sounds, and to go to Amsterdam. Sounds... Yeah, I feel like we we may be sending that story to Dupont again <laughs> for for this next year. We'll see. We'll see. Send it our way. Um, so we did last see you in January at yes. Columbia at the Dupont ceremony. Congratulations again. Thank you. We wanted to take a couple minutes today to talk about your award-winning story with Cosby's accuser speaking. Um, Can you start by just telling us a little bit about how it came about and um, some of the, you know, what was going on in the news at that time? Sure. Everybody remembers what happened, I think, in the fall, November, December of 2014, when suddenly in the news there were all these stories about Bill Cosby. And it was because... A comedian started talking about Cosby. A male comedian. Hannibal Buress started talking about um, Cosby being accused of rape. And at that point, a woman uh, came forward and wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post. And that opened the floodgates, really. I was doing stories almost every day for the Today Show and Nightly News about Bill Cosby. And by that following summer, we started thinking, wouldn't it be powerful to hear all of their stories in one place? And that was the genesis of the hour that we did was, frankly, me and a number of female producers, not that we had to be female, but we were, um, getting together. Ellen Mason was our senior producer. Sue Simpson, uh, Liz Brown were my main producers. And then Rob Buchanan got involved. And we just had these conversations like, how could we do this? How could we bring together a number of these accusers in one place? And that started, I guess, in the beginning of the summer. And it was August when we shot the interview. So you talked in another interview about how there were a lot of conversations within NBC as to whether you could actually make this thing happen. And what were some of the challenges? And what were, you know, was there pushback? Um, There wasn't pushback, although, as you can appreciate, we want people to watch our program. So we're always trying to come up with the most unique and innovative ways to, to tackle a subject. And I think in the in the early days of talking about it, we were concerned that maybe there was a little fatigue about the story, that would, would, would people want to sit and listen to a lot of accusers talking about Bill Cosby, or would, would it, I don't know, would it feel like too much? Um, so we debated that, and then we decided, no, this would be powerful. And then we had our booking team, led by Marianne Haggerty, start reaching out. At that point, uh, I can't remember the exact number, but I want to say there were more than around 50 or more accusers that had been public. And so we we just started reaching out. A a team, not me personally, but our bookers, reached out to every one of the women that we could find. A lot of them were represented by lawyers. Gloria Allred, for example, had a number of them as clients. So we could kind of tackle, you know, we kind of target the lawyers. But we also, we reached out to everybody we could find, even individuals, and asked them if they would be willing to all come together. And that, I think, was the beauty of the piece was that, and the interview, was that they didn't all know each other. 
beforehand. So we ended up having this incredibly organic conversation. We had flown all of them. Once they agreed, we flew them all to Los Angeles and we went to a hotel ballroom and we spent the whole day there. And, and I, I should have mentioned the other big obstacle was just logistics. Imagine trying to get 27 people in one room to talk about anything and, and, and to get all their schedules to match and their flights to line up. I and mean, that was a big logistical challenge. But once we got them there, you know, in the morning we, we had makeup for them and did their hair and they all kind of, and then we had a gathering room where they could all kind of talk with each other, not on camera, just, just to meet. And then we sat down together and it was powerful. So having them all together, all of those accusers in one place after all these, you know, the stories started coming out little by little and then it sort of became almost an avalanche of accusations against Bill Cosby. By convening this group of 27 accusers in one place, from a journalistic point of view, what did you all hope to accomplish by hearing their stories all together? I think what we wanted to accomplish, we knew from talking to them on the phone in, in the process of organizing all this, we knew that there were similarities in their stories and patterns that emerged. And I think that's what I personally was trying to draw out in the room. Um, and, and I was letting them, you can you see if you watch it, I was letting them finish each other's sentences and letting it breathe a little bit. And, and, and again, organic, like, you know, just the way that we're talking right now around a table is the way we wanted it to be so that we would have kind of an unvarnished, um, the viewer would have an unvarnished impression of, of what they allege they went through. Again, these are all just allegations, and he has not, to this day, been convicted of any crime. I need to say that. We always say that, and that's important. Um, and he denies many of their allegations. And putting them all in the same room together, I mean, what I noticed was this idea of, you know, one person would tell their story, and you would see the reactions from the other yeah. women. Is, was, there, was there something about the communal yeah. aspect well, of it? And this? I think that um, represented... In a nutshell, this room, this atmosphere that we were in, represented what had happened over the past six months, was that they had found each other to some extent, or at least known of each other. And that empowered, they said again and again, that it empowered them. One person hearing the other person tell her story on television had empowered the next person to come forward. And you got a sense of that in the room, too, that they were finding strength in numbers and power in numbers. And I remember, Bev I'll never forget, Beverly Johnson, who's a former supermodel, said, um, we are moving the needle. Not much, but we're moving the needle. And that's what they were all hoping to accomplish. So I wanna ask you a little bit about doing these kinds of interviews. You've obviously, you've done a lot of this kind of story about yeah. you know, really sensitive victims of trauma, sexual assault. It's, it's really tough, and especially if you're doing it for television. So. How did you, did you prepare them? Did you, how are they? Like I said, we had a room where they could gather in the morning. They had breakfast in there. You know, we brought in some catering. We also had another room where we did, we did shoot. Where there were cameras, and you see this in, in the hour, in the Dateline hour, um, where there was a wall of photos. We thought it just might be helpful to have pictures of them back in the day, back when they, you know, pictures of them that were from when they made their accusations. So, um, you know, someone's picture from the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, and it turned out to be incredibly emotional, way more emotional than we thought it would be for the women. They, they went up to that wall and they looked at themselves and broke into tears because they remembered that younger version of themselves 
being hurt, they say. So um, I guess we, we, we tried to create some connection between them. I, before we started rolling tape, I shared some things with them. Um, you know, as a female, as a woman, I think we've all, pr probably most women have experienced some amount of harassment. And so we, we try, we, I guess I tried to connect with them. And, and I, I told them that um, what they were doing was brave because it was, <laughs> you know, it's hard to talk about this stuff. I mean, I remember one of them said, I'm a grandmother and she was talking about oral sex and, and you know, and she's a grandmother and her grandkids are gonna be watching. It's not easy. Um, but that's what I do in every story that, I, that is sensitive. I mean, even with the one I just told you about, about the ballerina, people have to trust you and they have to know you at least a little bit before you sit down in the chair. And they have to know that you're not uh, judging them and that you're letting, you're just, in some ways it's sort of like, I imagine it's a little bit like being a therapist. You, you have to listen really well. Right. They, it is very emotionally difficult, though. I mean, how, does, how did doing that interview affect you personally? It affected me a lot. Um, hmm, that's a good question. I, I mean, I still think about it a lot. I, I think, again, for me, it was draining physically. We were in there for three hours, and then we took a lunch break, and then I think another two hours. I think we interviewed for five hours. Um, so, you know, I was like a wet rag doll by the end of the, by the end of the day, everybody was. Look, I, again, he, it's difficult because I am a journalist and I know that Bill Cosby has denied these allegations and has said again and again that he's not guilty of these charges and he has not been criminally found guilty. The, the last, the trial, the only criminal trial to go forward ended in a mistrial. He will be retried in November in case people lost the thread. That's the next thing that's happening. So I say that, but as, as a woman listening to all these stories, it was very difficult to not be moved and to not feel that it would be an incredible coincidence if all these women had made up the same exact story with the same type of behavior and the same patterns. I guess it's possible, but it would be an incredible coincidence. And so I felt like we were doing a service, again, not just for these women, but for all the women uh, you know, in America who maybe haven't said something because culturally 20 years ago it was a very different time. People didn't talk about this stuff. So if we're starting a conversation, I guess I felt proud of that. Um, you raised sort of an interesting question that, you know, it is always part of this topic, which is, you know, it, it's also really sensitive to make sure that you get it right and to, you know, do you tell both sides what's, you right. know, and we did, by the way, we requested an interview with Bill Cosby. We requested interviews with all of his lawyers, with any of his um, representatives, and they declined. So this was also being done on the heels of the UVA rape story. Mm -hmm. And I imagine uh, this is where Rolling Stone reported that there was a, a college student alleged gang rape, and then Rolling Stone ended up right. retracting it because right. there, there were so many errors. issues. Did that add to the pressure? Were you thinking about that at all? Were you I think th we're always thinking about that. Uh, I don't know that UVA added to the pressure. We're always, I mean, we are meticulous in trying to fact check and research. And I mean, we did, I, I think it's okay for me to disclose, we did background checks on every one of the women that we sat down with. We had researchers whose whole job was to, was dedicated to looking up 
their background and trying to at least make sure that when they said they were at this club in 1982, it, you know, there were other people who verified that they were at that club or there were ways to corroborate their stories. Did the women know you were doing those kinds of checks? Like, how do you balance the sensitivity of not making someone feel like you don't believe them with, right. I have to know that there's credibility here? I told them in the interview, I don't know how much had been told to them b beforehand, but during the interview, I said, you know, I need to ask you about some uncomfortable things. And I actually, some of this didn't air on TV, but just for our own reasons, I, you know, f again, for fact checking, I verified some parts of, of stories that we were, you know, confused about or where there were discrepancies. I asked a few of the women uh, about criminal records that they had. There were things that we uncovered that we had to ask about. Just professionally as journalists had to ask about. And then we ended up summarizing that in the piece. There, there were a couple lines about that. Right. So the, you know, we do this podcast in part because we want students to take away sure. lessons. And how do you, do you have advice on how you ask those kinds of tough questions? At, at one point in the, in the piece, you said, none of you in this room have DNA evidence, no police reports, sketchy memories. Why should we believe you? So how do you ask those tough questions? You have some yeah. tips? Um, I'm always thinking in every interview that I do, I'm always thinking about other points of view, you know, and, and in that moment that you just read, I was, I, and I think I even probably framed it to them. I said, I, I think I believe I said, okay, ladies, I'm now going to ask you some questions that Bill Cosby's team would be asking you that, you know, the, there, there's a, there's a man saying he didn't do any of this, so I've got to ask you these tough questions. And then we launched in, and I asked a number of challenging questions. They don't have DNA evidence, many of them. Actually, none of them. Um, you know, they, in some cases, don't have other witnesses. Um, and these are many, these are cases that happened, Cosby's team continually points out, many, many years ago. But I do this in every story. I guess I've trained myself to do that, you know? All right, to be curious about all sides of a story or looking at it from different points of view. Yeah, and sometimes it's hard to see. Sometimes you're so convinced, um, as, a, you know, as a person reading up on something, you might think, oh, well, this is so clear. But then you realize, oh, wait a second. What if it's this? <laughs> what, if they're, what if they're making this up? What if, you know what I mean? So you have to sort of, you have to think very critically about things. It's a great skill. You mentioned that you're still in touch with many of the accusers of Cosby's accusers. How are they doing, and what yeah. has their reaction been to this mistrial? So I, I attended the trial for one day. I was uh, busy on these other stories, so I wasn't able to go for more than one day. And I saw some of the women there in the courtroom in, in Pennsylvania. Um, a few of them were there. Uh, mostly I text with a lot of the women that we interviewed. Um, not all of them, but but a lot of them like to text and have stayed in touch. Um I think that they were, obviously, maybe this is obvious, disappointed by the mistrial. Um, but almost to a person, every one of, that I got in touch with after that mistrial said, we fight on. Well, this isn't over. It, it's, he wasn't found not guilty. So they were relieved that he wasn't exonerated, and they feel like the fight goes on in, in November. And I, look, I know a lot of these women, I know what they do professionally and personally I know about their kids now and you know and, and they're living their lives they are grandmothers and mothers and in all professions and you know what I mean so they're and they're going on with uh, their everyday lives but I, but in the background they're paying attention to what's happening 
legally. And some of them are still involved in suits as well. So those are ongoing? There are many, I don't know the number right now, but there are uh, multiple civil lawsuits against Bill Cosby. So interesting. As we were getting ready to come down here, um, I was mentioning to Lisa how I had seen your reporting in Penn State, Thinking, speaking of another mm. big sexual accusation. That, yeah, story. that happens to be another. I don't only do these stories, by the way. I sometimes do happy stories. The ballerina. Uh, yeah, that turns out to be a really happy story in the end. By the way, that's on my Facebook page if people are curious to see it. Um, so Penn State, uh, Jerry Sandusky, who's now in jail, um, I, I interviewed the first uh, young man to go public on television. Others had talked to print, but he was the first television interview, and that was for a show called Rock Center with Brian Williams um, several years ago. Uh, my father, full disclosure, was a professor at Penn State at the time. He's since retired. Um, that's another thing. When you're a journalist, you have to sort of disclose if you have a personal connection to something. Um, so that particular story was, was, was tough on a lot of levels for me. Uh, um, talking to that young man was heartbreaking. Um, and then dealing with, you know, my, my, my own parents were so sad and so disappointed at what had happened. And obviously, you know, they were heartbroken too. Is there any similarity between those two stories? I'm just thinking about it in terms of... Well, in of terms of what the victims say, absolutely. Um, again, Cosby's not been convicted, unlike Sandusky, so I, but I can say that in their stories, they all describe what, what is known as grooming behavior, making a person comfortable. The, the, the young man that I interviewed um, on Sandusky um, talked about... He was young. He was... I forget, I think eight or nine years old, somewhere around there. And Sandusky would take him to events, um, you know, take him to fun activities, uh, drive around in his car with him. And, and his, his mother knew that Sandusky was befriending him and taking him to all these, giving him great access to Penn State sports, buying him presents. That's called grooming behavior. The women in the Cosby situation have also described being young women and wanting to be models or actresses, and Cosby, they, they allege, was uh, taking them to places, taking them to his shows, introducing them to talent scouts and agents, managers, helping them, you know, produce a record. Or I mean, th there are all kinds of stories like that. That's one of the things that they all, many of them have in common. Not all of them, but many of them have in common. Right, and so then the guilt that the victims feel, mm -hmm. because they are part of it, the, they've somehow become... Yeah, they, they, they would this. describe that they were lured into the situation and then felt that they couldn't say anything because he had, I mean, in Andrea Constant's case in Pennsylvania, it came out, the case that was a mistrial, it came out that she kept in touch with him and the defense used that against her. They said she continued to talk to Bill Cosby and, talk, and phone calls and, um, you know, he, he at one point offered her family in Canada tickets to his show after she says he uh, molested her, so, or, you know, assaulted her. The other parallel I see is just how these people in positions of power, everyone looks the other way for them, or how they are able to get away, or, you know, given the benefit of the doubt, or sort of not held to the same scrutiny as regular folks, you know? A lot of the women told stories about that. Eden Turrell, for example, who was a walk-on uh, on The Cosby Show, and she... I keep in touch with her. She has been emphatic that many people, and she said this on camera in our piece, that many people knew 
that something shady was happening. They saw her, you know, being taken to his dressing, Cosby's dressing room. They saw her come out upset and nobody said a word because she says that that was sort of accepted behavior at the time. Everybody, she, she believes that everyone around her knew that Cosby uh, was at the very least being an adulterer. Um, again, I haven't talked to all the other people on the set. I don't know, but that's what, that's what she claims. We typically, you know, ask people that we talk to about advice they give to young journalists, sure. journalism students. What uh, I feel like this has been very sad. Like I should talk about a happy story that I've done. Well, the Bellamy is a happy story, but <laughs> it I, is. no, it is. I mean, in a, more of an uplifting, you know, words of advice, guidance. Yes, um, my biggest one is to take some risks. Uh, I think most of us in my profession, most of us who've who've kind of risen up to network level took a lot of risks and also seeing seeing an opening and you know a, an opportunity or a door cracked open and and wedging yourself into that door and trying you know it doesn't always work but if you look back at my life there are any number of times that someone said to me well i don't know maybe you don't even want that and i said no 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 I do want to try for that. Um, Good Morning America, which I used to anchor on the weekends, is a great example. Uh, my, my bosses at ABC said, we don't, I was covering the White House, and they said, we don't think you're really right. They actually called me on vacation. It's a bit of a story. But they called me on vacation and said, we're going to be doing some screen tests tomorrow for the new weekend Good Morning America show that we're launching. We already have the male anchor. We're going to test some women with him. We don't think you're right for it, so don't worry. Stay on your vacation. You don't need to be there. And I said, but can I be there if I want to be? And they said, yeah, but how are you going to get there? And I said, oh, don't worry about it. I'll be there. I ran from the beach back to my sister's house. I like took a red-eye flight overnight, landed at 7 in the morning at JFK from Portland, Oregon, and went to Saks and bought clothes and shoes and a handbag because I had nothing with me. I had beach clothes. And I went to the screen test and I got the job. So th th that's a small example of take a risk, you know, you see something that might be of interest, go for it. When opportunity knocks. Sometimes you have to kind of create your own opportunity. Yeah, yeah you know? absolutely. You absolutely. see the opening and then you create it. Yeah. Well, and, and holding truth to power, which is such an important part of the journalist's world, something else you've done so well, Kate. Thank you. I, I hope so. I mean, that's, you know, that's all, looking back, that's all I can hope for, right, is that I've done some stories that have, you know, Spoken Truth to Power, I've done some stories that have gotten people talking. I think there are a lot of things in this world that we don't talk about enough, you know, mental health or, um, I don't know, drug abuse. I've done a lot of stories about addiction, um, heroin in particular. And, and those are things that for a while we weren't really covering. Now we, now we are, unfortunately, because it's just so massive. But um, that's a lot, of my, a lot of my stories. If you look for a common theme, it's, it's things that maybe aren't getting a lot of attention. I did a series on transgender kids, for example. They weren't getting a lot of attention at the time. Now they are. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, great. Thank you so much, Kate. Great talking to you. Thank you. This yes, is fun. thanks for having us here. No problem. Thanks again to Kate Snow of NBC. Now, to bring you up to speed on the Cosby case, following that mistrial back in June, his retrial was originally scheduled for this November, but a judge just delayed it until March of 2018. 
That's right. So they will have to pick a whole new jury in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, where that trial is being held. So we will have to wait and see. A note about future episodes in this season's On Assignment. We are gearing up for the kickoff of our Fall Film Friday series, and we have a really exciting lineup of documentaries. First up, we're going to screen Get Me Roger Stone, the riveting Netflix documentary about the political operative Roger Stone, followed by City of Ghosts, and then Nobody Speak, which is the story of the recent demise of the Gawker website at the hands of wrestler Hulk Hogan. Those are some big hands. So stay tuned for future episodes of On Assignment, featuring interviews with the journalists and filmmakers behind those great docs and more. If you want to attend Film Fridays, you can check out the online events calendar at journalism.columbia.edu slash events. Then, in a few weeks, CNN's Christian Amanpour will be at the J School speaking to students. So we're going to bring you that as well. And we'll be sharing a few of the conversations that we also had with folks at this summer's IRE conference. That's the Investigative Reporters and Editors. It's kind of the premier annual meeting of top journalists, especially investigative journalists. They all get together, share tips, lessons from the front lines of reporting. This year it was in Phoenix. It was 110 degrees most of the time. And we met a lot of really interesting people. It's always an energizing experience. Yeah, we got to sit down with a few of them who had fascinating, helpful, and very entertaining things to say about journalism today. So stay tuned for that as well. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was produced by J School grad Miriam Sitz with the assistance of our special projects coordinator, Millie Christie Dervaux, and our new DuPont fellow, Ingrid Holmquist. Our music is by Dylan Nowick. Today's sound engineer is Ariana Sullivan. Follow us on Twitter at OnAssignmentPod and visit us at www.onassignmentpodcast.org. You can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of On Assignment.